This evening's scripture reading will be from 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, which reads, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. There we go. I'm thankful for the opportunity to be together this Lord's Day evening to consider some things from the Word of God. And that is really going to be the subject matter for our discussion tonight. It is the reliability and trustworthiness of God's Word. Because that is certainly under attack. If you have friends that might be more secular in nature, that are very worldly, that maybe they are skeptics, maybe they are agnostics or atheists, where they don't have any sort of belief in God. They oftentimes will attack the Scriptures and the Word of God because if the Word of God is true, and if it's binding, then it would force them to change. It would require something of them. And that's what they do not want to do. And so they have to go to the very foundation. And this year we have been looking at some arguments that come from skeptics and from atheists. And so we're going to try to address this. Whether there are contradictions and errors in the Bible, that is a question. It's a valid question. It's something that we need to be able to handle and appropriate. And I just want to mention at the outset of our study this evening, if we're going to have quite a bit of material on the slides. And so if you're a note taker, I apologize in advance, but I freely offer uh, the charts. If you want a PDF copy of them with my notes and everything, I am more than happy to uh, get that to you. Uh, these are always available. And so if there's something that you just don't get written down, then uh, let me know because there's going to be a couple of charts that will have a lot of information on it, and, but it would be really helpful if you would like that copy. But what we see is that this is something that is going to come up. There is the president of the uh, American Atheist Group. And he makes this statement, what is incredible about the Bible is not its divine authorship, it's that such a concoction of contradictory nonsense could be believed by anyone to have been written by an omniscient God. To do so, one would first have to not read the book, which is the practice of most Christians, that's a little dig there, isn't it? Or if one does read it, dump in the trash can, uh, trash can one's rational intelligence to become a fool for God. In other words, to be an atheist, one need only be able to laugh when such obvious nonsense is offered as being divine truth. Not holding any punches, is he? He's very clear that he does not like the Bible and that he has no appreciation for it. But as Christians, we believe that the Bible is inspired. Believe what Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1. He said that the biblical authors were moved by the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit was involved in giving them the words and the thoughts and the ideas that are presented in the pages of Scripture. Notice 2 Peter chapter 1 in verses 20 and 21, what Peter says, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Or he's saying that this did not come from their invention. He says, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. In 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, as we just read a few moments ago, that the Scriptures are inspired, or that word, it means to be God-breathed. 
you think about breath, to be able to speak, it takes breath, it takes air. And whenever Paul is saying that the Scriptures are inspired, he's saying it's the God-breathed message, it's the Word of God, it is what is spoken. And as you can imagine, throughout Scripture, there are passages that would describe inspiration. Even in the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, in Deuteronomy the 18th chapter, and in verse 18, as Moses is prophesying about a prophet that is going to come, he says in verse 18, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And I believe this is describing inspiration, that this is that God is concerned about the words that would be spoken. The words are inspired. And that's something that I believe is incredibly important for us to recognize. Is that it's not just the thought of Scripture that's being conveyed that is inspired. It's down to the very words. I believe that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and in verses 10 through 13, he says, for to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. He goes on in, in verse 12, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit comparing or combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. And it goes beyond just a thought. It goes into the very words. The idea or the technical aspect that we would say is that we believe in verbal inspiration, that the words of Scripture are inspired. And we believe that every word is inspired. I love the passage in Matthew chapter 4 when Jesus is facing the Satan in his temptation. In Matthew chapter 4 and in verse 4, whenever he actually quotes from the Old Testament, and he, and he answered and said, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. It's not just some of the words, it's every word. All Scripture is inspired by God. Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3. All of it. All the words are absolutely true. And so whenever we want to consider inspiration, that is what we're talking about. We're talking about the words that we find and that we read. We believe that those have been given to us by God. Norman Geisler, in his uh, four volume, I think it's four volume, three or four volumes set on systematic theology, he defines inspiration and he says, inspiration is the supernatural operation of the Holy Spirit who through the different personalities and literary styles of the chosen human authors invested the very words of the original books of Holy Scripture alone and in their entirety as the very Word of God without error in all that they teach or imply, including history and science, and the Bible is thereby the infallible rule and final authority for faith and practice of all believers. I just have to say amen to that. And the very words have come from God. That's the claim that the Scriptures have. And if you notice here in this definition, and what is sometimes referred to as inerrancy, sometimes we're very familiar with the word inspiration because we read about that in, in the Bible, don't we? And the, all Scripture is inspired by God, but this idea or concept of inerrancy, sometimes we may not quite know what that is. And here, uh, Mr. Geisler introduces that in that it's, Without error, he says, that this is the very Word of God without error. Inspiration is the claim that God is the ultimate author of the Bible, and since God cannot lie, Titus chapter 1 and verse 2, the Bible is inerrant. That is, it does not lie to us. 
Now, someone might say, well, preacher, you need to read Genesis chapter 3 because Satan lies, doesn't he? Or you read about Rahab the harlot and she told a lie. Or Abraham and Sarah and they told a lie. There's lies in the Scripture. And that's confusing, this idea of inerrancy. Inerrancy does not deny that there have been lies that have been spoken throughout time and that even those lies are recorded in the Bible. What inerrancy means is that the Bible accurately portrays what was said in those lies. It doesn't try to hide the bad stuff, basically. That what you read about actually happened. And you can see that the Bible is equated oftentimes in what the Scripture says. It's oftentimes equated with what God says. Just as an example, very quickly, in the book of Genesis, in the 12th chapter, when God made His appearance to Abraham, His first appearance to Abraham, and spoke to him in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3, He says, And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Then you look over at Galatians chapter 3 and verse 8. In Galatians chapter 3 and in verse 8, Paul says, The Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the Gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. Do you notice what you see that? In Genesis, it's God who's speaking. In Galatians, Paul says it's the Scriptures that say it. What God says, the Scriptures say. And it works in reverse as well. What the Bible says, God says. You can see a few passages in Genesis chapter 2 and Matthew chapter 19 as an example of such. What we need to also recognize is that we're talking about inspiration and inerrancy. Is that we are acknowledging that those apply to the original text of Scripture. That we have copies upon copies upon copies of the original autographs of Scripture. But what we are acknowledging that when we say the Bible is inspired or inerrant, we are referring to the original, to the autograph, if you will. And that's something that we need to make sure that we recognize and have firmly uh, planted in our minds as we discuss these things. But what the doctrine of inerrancy guarantees is that the Bible conveys truth. And so many times the Scriptures claim to reveal what God has said. The statement, thus says the Lord in the prophets. Or God said, or God spoke, or the Word of God, or the Word of the Lord came. We're recognizing that God is the original author behind all the words. And so God who cannot lie, He speaks truth. And whenever we recognize that, we can be convinced and recognize that God is truthfully and fully, without error, giving us what we need to know. And since the Bible is inspired and inerrant, the Scriptures are rightly our authority for spiritual guidance. Because every word is important. All that is written. All Scripture is inspired by God. One of my favorite arguments in, that Jesus makes is found in Matthew chapter 22. In Matthew, the 22nd chapter, and in verse 32, as the Sadducees come, and, and Matthew tells us just a little bit earlier that the Sadducees, they don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, they don't believe in angels and spirits and things like that. They were really kind of the first modernists of the day. And Jesus, He's debunking all of that, and He's arguing that there is going to be a resurrection at the end. And He does so based on an Old Testament passage, an Old Testament passage that if you just read, you would probably not think much about. 
And in Matthew chapter 22 and in verse 32, Jesus is quoting from the book of Exodus. He says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And this is one of my favorite arguments that Jesus makes to the Sadducees because His whole argument is based upon a verb. I'm a, I'm a language guy. I like seeing language arguments. And whenever it's down to not even just the verb, but the tense of the verb, and I'm talking past, present, or future tense. Because if you know anything about the Bible, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they had been dead for about 400 years by the time of Moses. Whenever someone is dead, we usually speak in the past tense, don't we? But the Old Testament and what when God was speaking to Moses and He made this and He said, I am, present tense, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Down to the very, the very tense of that verb. It has enormous application, doesn't it? And Jesus says, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. That they are still in existence. That does away with all this annihilationism and idea that poof, you're gone after you die. Jesus also said in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5 in verses 17 and 18, He says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. The jot or the tittle maybe is what some of your translations might say. And those, imagine if Kristen used to be an English teacher, and I don't know how harshly she graded it, punctuation. But if you ever had a teacher that just marked every mispronunciation or your... If you had if you had a period and you should have had an ex, uh, exclamation point or question mark or something like that, just all the punctuation just was off. At, you may think, well, that's not really a big deal. Jesus says it's a big deal. All of it, the smallest parts matter. That's why whenever we look at God's Word, we're careful to examine it. We want to know, we want to be sure that we have it right and our understanding is right. Because we understand that even the smallest parts, even down to the very tense of the verb, it matters. Because it's inspired and given to us by God. And it has enormous spiritual ramifications and implications for us. And so that introduces us a little bit to the concept of inspiration and inerrancy. And I would think that's something that we need to have firmly planted in our minds. But then we need to begin to address whether the Bible is truly reliable or not, because that's really the accusation. Whenever someone might say there are over 400,000 errors in the Bible, that sounds like an enormous number, doesn't it? Say there's over 400,000 errors and mistakes or contradictions in the Bible. And that sounds like such a big number, but don't worry because 98.5% of the copies that we have are actually textually pure. And I'm going to show you, I think, in just a moment that that remaining 1.5% where there might be some degree of question it actually becomes proof positive for the reliability of the Scripture and not against it. We're going to see that the Bible is very well addressed and very reliable and very trustworthy even whenever others may say otherwise. Otherwise. 
some of the errors, and as I mentioned, what we acknowledge, and I think we have to acknowledge this, if we're going to be fair, if we're going to be able to converse with someone who's an atheist or someone who is an agnostic and doubts the Scriptures, they're going to, if they know what they're talking about, they're probably going to have a few things that they're going to say, well, here's a contradiction, here's a contradiction, or here's an error in the Bible where there's something wrong. And remember I said that 1.5%, it's pretty the types and examples of errors, if you will, it's pretty small. And we have to acknowledge, you have to be willing to acknowledge that inspiration and inerrancy, it applies to the original autographs of Scripture, not to the copyists, because the copyists do make mistakes. The copies do make mistakes. And here are some of the types of mistakes that might be found in the uh in the copies. And you should have seen, as I was working on this outline and putting it all together, you should have seen the mistakes I was making as I was typing. <laughs> I, had to, I was making all of these mistakes right here. There's what is called didography, which is, you might say the word ladder with two T's instead of later with one T. Is that a big deal? Your word processor is probably not going to pick up on that. You're not going to have that red squiggly line that says, oh, I need to go fix that. But it's, it's very similar. It's a very easy kind of mistake to make. Or there's fission where you might type or say nowhere and not now here when that was intended. Or fusion. You might say, look, it is there in the cabinet. But then you might combine the words there and in into one word, therein. <laughs> look, it is there in the cabinet. There might be an error there, but it has no substantial kind of meaning or, or distinction or difference. There's a hapography where later is, in, is intended instead of latter. Or... Homophony where you have words that are spelled different, but they sound the same. I'm going to, Zeke likes to eat steak, and he says meat. But if I'm going to say, I'm going to go meet you, that's a very different kind of meat. But those are the kind, they're the types of errors that might be in some of the copies, or there, there, and there. Which one are we talking about? And I see that one all over the place. Or uh, sometimes there are misspellings just whenever we invert letters and get them out of order. Maybe we mean mats when mast was intended. Or maybe we say cats when cast was intended. These are all errors, right? If you had an editor or someone who was grading your paper, they might acknowledge that you had something wrong there but it doesn't really have any kind of significant impact on the meaning of what you are trying to convey. Usually, if there are these types of errors, you're going to be able to find out very quickly, very easily, what was truly intended. And as we think about the New Testament in particular, and just the amount of proof and evidence we have for it. I hope you can see this chart. If you can't, this, this is worth asking for the notes later on. You've probably read some of these in school. I know I had to read the Iliad in ninth grade. That was written in the year 900 B.C. And all of these are ancient books. Our earliest copy of the Iliad is found in 400 B.C. With, that's a gap or a time span of 500 years. And the number of copies of that is very substantial. 643 copies of Homer's The Iliad. 
That's a pretty significant number for ancient literature because you continue on down the, the list and nothing holds a candlestick to 643 copies. Caesar's Gallic Wars, written from 100 to 44 B.C., our earliest copy of that is found in 900 A.D., a, a span of about a thousand years. And the number of copies of that? Ten. And you see that in all the others. It's roughly about the same. They are all written in 400, 300 B.C., that time frame. The earliest copies are 900 to 1100 A.D. with gaps of 1,000 to 1,500 years between the original and the earliest copy that we have and the number of copies that are in existence, seven, eight, nine, just a handful of them. But you know what we don't say? Like in, we, we read this in literature, don't we? In literature class. In English, we say, you need to read this. This is the ancient literature. And we don't question it, do we? We don't question, is this really reliable? Is this really, is this really what Homer said in the Iliad? We don't have those kinds of discussions, do we? You want to see what the New Testament is like? The New Testament was written roughly AD 50 to AD 90, give or take some years there. Our earliest copies of the New Testament, A.D. 130. That's a time span of 30 to 40 years there. And in the number of copies in existence, just in the Greek manuscripts alone, nearly 6,000. Nearly 6,000. Copies. Whenever you add that into translations and other things like that, you're getting to about 25,000 copies. Nothing, nothing in ancient literature holds a candlestick to the credibility and the reliability of the New Testament. And remember whenever I said that that 1.5% you know, we don't need to really worry about it. And that whenever atheists say, well, there's like over 400,000 errors in the Bible, you want to know why there are so many? It's because they count from all the copies. It's like if I were to write three sentences on a piece of paper and typed it out, printed it, and then we put it on the Xerox machine, and we made a hundred copies. And let's say in those three sentences there were about uh, five errors, you would count that by, you would multiply that by a hundred. And then you'd say, Sean made 500 errors in this thing. Can you believe that? Well, no, I just made five. <laughs> it was just copied so many times. That's what they're doing with the New Testament. Whenever they say there are 400,000 errors or mistakes or contradictions in the Bible, the only reason that they get such a large emphatic number is because there are so many copies of the New Testament. Don't worry whenever someone says that there are over 400,000 mistakes in the Bible. You say you're exactly right because the New Testament is the most reliable and credible literature from the ancient world that we have. That's what you tell them. And we can take great confidence in that. That is what F.F. F. Bruce said in Josh McDowell's book, The New Evidence That Demands a Verdict, he said, there is no body of ancient literature in the world which enjoys such a wealth of good textual attestation as the New Testament. In uh, another author, he said, in real terms, the New Testament is easily the best attested ancient writing in terms of the sheer number of documents, the time span between the events and the document, and the variety of documents available to sustain or contradict it. There is nothing in ancient manuscripts 
manuscript evidence to match such textual availability and integrity. And he brings out the, the closeness of the time span, doesn't he? Remember all the other, like there's a thousand years between the copy and, or the original and the copy that we have. What do you think? Do you think if there's so much time, that's a lot more likely to have errors, right? Have you ever played that game Telephone? Where I might whisper something to Joe and then it keeps going and going and by the time it gets back to Scott, it's, it's not going to be anything close to what originally said, right? Because we're all going to change it. We're all going to adapt it. It's going to, there's going to be misunderstandings. Whenever you have years, and talking about a millennia, where there's time that's, that makes it a lot more susceptible for change and for alteration and, and errors to creep in. But with the New Testament, that time is condensed. And then you get all the copies that are made of it. And it is just an amazing feat that we have. Josh McDowell in that book, The New Evidence That Demands a Verdict, he says the importance of the sheer number of manuscript copies cannot be overstated. As with other documents of ancient literature, there are no known extant or that's currently existing original manuscripts of the Bible. Fortunately, however, the abundance of manuscript copies makes it possible to reconstruct the original with virtually complete accuracy. While we don't have the original autographs, he's saying that doesn't really matter because we have so many copies of the New Testament that we can get it all. It's an amazing thing that we have. And I believe God has providentially given to us and helped us preserve. And so the Bible is something that can be believed and trustworthy because of its reliability. Whenever people might say, well, you know, Sean, there's a lot of problems in the Bible. There's a lot of errors. And usually they are talking about scientific or historical inaccuracies. And many times I believe it's just coming from people who want to say that because they want to appeal to the Bible as ancient literature and then they want to say, well, ancient people, they didn't have all the scientific advancements that we have and so they were just ignorant. And they did not understand what we do. Because we're so enlightened. We're so much better off. We're so much smarter and more intelligent now. And we might think about how in the book of Job, in Job chapter 26, and verse 7 as... Job is speaking and he is describing God and His greatness. He says in verse 7, He stretches out the north over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. We now know that's attributed to gravity. But you think about what ancient cultures used to believe about the earth. Some believed that it was sitting, that the earth was sitting on atop the back of a turtle, and that the turtle was actually standing on a serpent. That's not what the Bible says. That's not what Job says. He says, well before, and if the dating of the book of Job is correct, then it's probably more like the time frame of the book of Genesis around the time of Abraham, if not before. So we're going back 4,000 plus years, when he is able to say the earth hangs on nothing. You know, some people believe that it was Atlas who was holding the earth on his back. Sadly, for the Flat Earth Society, the Bible told us that the earth was a circle. The book of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 40 and in verse 22, describing God and how He is so majestic and how He is so great. And 
It says in verse 22, it is He who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Here are some basic scientific truths that the Bible knew and has revealed to us. And some of God's people that were inspired, they heard this. In ancient times, many people believed that the earth was flat and it was surrounded by a dome from which the stars were hanging on strings. <laughs> if you could imagine that. That's not what the Bible describes though. Isaiah says very clearly that the earth is a circle. In Job chapter 26, turning back there, we see that there's the description of the water cycle. And that was something that was not really understood uh, until some experiments in the 1600s, in the 17th century. In Job chapter 26 and in verse 8, notice what Job says there. He says, He wraps up the waters in His clouds, and the cloud does not burst under them. He obscures the face of the full moon, and spreads His cloud over it. In chapter 36, in chapter 36 of the book of Job, in verses 27 and 28, He says, For He draws up the drops of water, they distill rain from the mist, which the clouds pour down, they drip upon man abundantly. He's describing evaporation, precipitation, and condensation. And many of the ancients, they did not understand the water cycle. They did not have the explanation for rain and, and all those things. And here it is in the Bible. Those are just some of the, a few, a handful of the scientific kinds of evidences that substantiate the Bible. And if the Bible is clear and precise on small details like that, things that many people in the day did not believe or did not understand, then we need to reckon with the Bible. We need to acknowledge it. We cannot just quickly dismiss it. But some of my favorite things are actually the historical things that substantiate the Bible. If I were to tell you that until 1994, I remember 94 very clearly. I was in second grade. My sister was born that year. It was a big year for me. 1994. That's the year that King David was finally acknowledged to have been a real historical person. Until then... Until just 1994, and many of you are probably thinking, yeah, Sean, you were just a kid. I'm a lot older than you. I, I remember the 80s or I remember the 70s. Until 1994, King David was thought to just be this mythical, legendary king, kind of like a King Arthur type. Until the Tel Dan inscription was found. in which there was this stone slab pictured here. And it was found in, in the land of Israel. And it had an inscription to King David and specifically to the house of David. That gave an archaeological and historical evidence that substantiated everything that the Bible said about King David, at least as being a historical true person. Such an amazing thing. In, until 1854, another king that was thought to have just been legendary or at least 
maybe he would have had a right to the kingdom, but he did not actually uh, have take hold of the kingship was Belshazzar in the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 5. He was thought to have at least never been king. But in 1854, there is uh, a man named John Taylor in which he discovered an item here called the, uh, I'm going to butcher this name, but the Nabonidus Cylinder. Nabonidus is Belshazzar's father. And Nabonidus, he declared that his son would have a share of the kingdom. And it was recorded on this cylinder. That was not confirmed until 1854. I think we, in times past I've mentioned the Hittites, the Hittite nation. That's another historical and archaeological evidence of the Bible because you read about the Hittites in the Old Testament and people, they used to think, well, the Hittites, there's no proof of them. Until about the late 1800s, 1880 or so, there began to be some archaeological digs in the early 1900s. It was confirmed that it was the Hittite people that they were finding there. And it's actually funny, if you go back and you look at some of the books that were being written by secularists and naturalists and things like that in the 17s and 1800s, they would use this idea of the Hittites, they would mock it and they would say, well, that's proof right there that the Bible is just made up of all these myths and stories. And then, uh (laughs) uh-oh, now we find proof of the Hittites. So what was, I think this is just proof that God has to have a sense of humor. What became, what was evidence, if you will, for the Bible not being true, now it has shifted gears to showing that this is evidence for the truthfulness and reliability of the Bible. And some people might say, well, the Bible, you know, it's just not historically accurate. It's not scientifically accurate. But it is accurate in its theology or at least presentation of God. Now they kind of try to take this middle of the road sort of idea. That maybe the Bible is what we should follow when it comes to doctrine or spiritual teachings. But we just can dismiss these errors or the the lack of scientific evidence or lack of historical uh, confirmations. Uh, We can just dismiss that because it's not really that important. As long as you believe what the Bible says about God and about Jesus and salvation, then you're good. I don't think you can take a middle-of-the-road approach when it comes to this. Because Christians confess to believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. How can you explain that scientifically? You may say, okay, well, maybe that was kind of made up. All right, if you want to say that, you you go right ahead. But at the core of Christianity is the fundamental belief that Jesus rose from the dead. How do you explain that scientifically? You see, you can't parse out the spiritual stuff from the scientific or the historical stuff. They go together. Scientific and historical reality with theological and spiritual claims stand or fall together. So how should we approach Bible difficulties? I think we first have to say and understand and assume, because there's going to be some assumptions that everyone makes, but we need to assume that the unexplained is unexplainable or it's unnecessary for us to know. 
before we say, well, there's an error there or there's a mistake there because you can't explain it, that's putting you in a very lofty position, isn't it? Why don't you just start with the assumption, instead of there's an error, make the assumption that I don't need to know or it's unexplainable. And then assume the Bible is correct and innocent before charging it with guilt and error. Because there might be things that you don't understand. There might be some things contextually, historically, culturally, literarily that you just don't kind of see. You need to seek to understand the context. I'm open with that quote from the American atheist president. And it's funny, you look at his website and he puts all these verses together from Old and New Testament and he says, well, in, in the the book of Genesis and the old law it says that you have to be circumcised and keep the Sabbath day. And then over here in the New Testament it says circumcision is nothing. And he's like, well, there's an obvious contradiction. I'm like, yeah, it's because you don't understand anything about the Bible and what happens between there and here. Now, there's a whole change in the system and the law that you are neglecting to see. Because you're just not understanding the context of Scripture. And so whenever we, need, whenever we may not understand something or whenever someone says there's, this is an error, maybe you should challenge them and say, are you certain that you know this is to be true or this is the case? Maybe you just don't fully grasp or understand the context in which it was situated. Or maybe you have confused interpretation with revelation that you are just bound and determined to say, this is true because I believe this is what I understand about it. Just because you may understand the text doesn't mean that's what the text says. I've been wrong to, about understanding a certain text of Scripture that I've had to change and modify because I studied it and I began to understand it better. And then we have to interpret difficult texts of Scripture with clear and easy or obvious text of Scripture. And then we need to realize that there are human characteristics in the Bible. That there are literary styles. There's sarcasm. <laughs> I love the Apostle Paul. He can be very sarcastic. He can use hyperbole. He can grow a little frustrated or angry sometimes. There are human characteristics in the Bible. And we need to acknowledge those because those can help us in explaining some of the difficulties that we might find in Scripture. So, are there contradictions in the Bible? Well, it may depend on what you mean by that. Atheists who claim that the Bible is nonsense and filled with contradictions, they don't clearly or accurately or uh, with discernment read the Scriptures. They don't read it within its context. They might make many of the mistakes that we have warned against in that previous chart on approaching Bible difficulties. But as is the case most of the time when we have a problem that we see in Scripture and understanding the text, usually the problem lies right here. If we think there's some contradiction, there's usually some explanation. There's usually some explanation that we can see. That with a little time, with a little effort, with a little thought, and careful consideration, we can explain it. Maybe it doesn't fully satisfy you, but usually there is an explanation. I had a class one time, and it was on the book of Genesis and in the Pentateuch, and I was very frustrated in the class. <clears throat> This wasn't a Bible class at church. It was at a university. 
And they were trying to cast doubt on the authorship of the book of Genesis. And how all these stories, they were just kind of handed out and weaved together. And, and that really didn't make much sense. And they said, look, here's the evidence. You have all these stories that are repeated. Like in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham and, and his wife Sarah, they go down to Egypt. And guess what? They lie to Pharaoh. Then you go just eight chapters later in chapter 20, I believe it is. And guess what? The same thing happens It's with a different king. and It's a bivolek there. It's a different situation. But obviously, because these stories are duplicated, it's obviously just a product of man, they said. And what I found so fascinating about that is that it does not give any kind of account for human uh, habits. Because <laughs> we're creatures of habit, aren't we? How many of us have stumbled and failed over the same sin? I'm a creature of habit. I like to drink coffee in the morning. How many of you like to do that every morning? Oh, you duplicated that every day. So if that's ever recorded and written down in history, how, do you, how would you like for people to say, that couldn't have happened, it happened every day of his life? It's ridiculous, isn't it? The Bible is a product of God. It is something that God has given to us through human instruments, human writers, who were at times imperfect, but they perfectly recorded the very words and the very thoughts of God. And so we can have great confidence in the Bible as the inspired, inerrant, and reliable Word of God that contains the message of salvation and hope for life everlasting. Tonight, if you need to come to know God, you can come to know Him through His Word. He has revealed to us that through Jesus, His Son, that He came and Jesus offered His life for years. He offered Himself because of your sins. That your sins can be washed away if you would come being obedient to Him in baptism. Maybe it is that you have not been living right, living faithfully. Won't you come back to God? We encourage you to do so tonight. For it's eternally too late. If you're a subject, would you come as we stand and as we sing?